Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast, presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion activity to our June 2012 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, Emerging Pathogens in Cystic Fibrosis. Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland. This activity has been developed for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the July 2012 podcast link. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to describe the evidence for potential treatment options in cystic fibrosis patients with new and or persistent MRSA infection, mycobacterium abscessus infection, and Burkholderia sinocipatia complex and sepatia syndrome. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line, we have with us Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics and Associate Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland. Dr. Dazenbrook has disclosed that he is an advisor to Severa Pharmaceuticals. He has also indicated that his presentation today will include references to vancomycin and amikacin, agents that are unlabeled or unapproved for treating infection in patients with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Dazenbrook. Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I'm happy to be here and excited to do the podcast today. Your newsletter issue reviewed recent data on the prevalence and virulence of particular respiratory pathogens in individuals with cystic fibrosis. What I'd like to do today is focus on the clinical implications of that data. Uh, So if you would, doctor, start us out with a patient. Sure. Case number one is a patient who is an 11-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis who presents for a quarterly cystic fibrosis clinic visit. She's asymptomatic with no signs of a pulmonary exacerbation. Physical exam is unchanged from previous and her lungs are clear. Her FEV1 is at her baseline of 85%. Her previous throat cultures include methicillin-sensitive staph aureus and pseudomonas aeruginosa. Her respiratory medications include hypertonic saline, DNAase, albuterol, azithromycin, ibuprofen, and every other month inhaled tobramycin. The lab calls and her throat swab from clinic grows MRSA. All right, so this patient is now growing MRSA. Key question, watchful waiting versus treatment. What's the evidence about a patient with a new MRSA infection? A key point is to distinguish between new infection, and persistent infection. So clearly in the case here, we have a patient with a new MRSA infection. And so when you're making a decision about treatment versus watchful waiting, there's actually good evidence for both approaches. So in favor of watchful waiting is that our patient is asymptomatic and her FEV1 is at her baseline. Second, there is some evidence that MRSA infections, when they're new, may clear on their own. Three studies using three different patient populations have estimated that anywhere from a quarter to a third of new MRSA infections may clear on their own. 
Furthermore, studies show that MRSA that clears on its own does not subsequently impact lung function or survival. Therefore, watching patients to see if they develop symptoms or end up persistently culturing MRSA is a very reasonable approach. In favor of treatment, there are several facts that also would allow treatment as well. So as we will talk about further, most of the epidemiologic evidence for the impact of MRSA is from persistent MRSA infections. And obviously, all persistent MRSA must start out as a new MRSA infection. And from our experience with Pseudomonas, we know that the easiest time to eradicate an infection is at the time that it is initially cultured. Therefore, treatment of a new asymptomatic infection may provide benefit if a chronic infection can therefore be prevented. So I think it's pretty clear that in terms of a new MRSA infection, that there are good arguments for watchful waiting, and you can also make equally strong arguments in favor of treatment. Well, let me ask you then, Dr. Dasenbrook, this patient you just presented, if she were your patient, watchful waiting or initiating treatment, which would you choose? So first, let me state that there are no guidelines in the United States for treatment of MRSA infections or even how to approach eradication. And so I would favor treating a patient. And if I were to treat this patient, since the clinical impact of a new MRSA infection is unclear, I would opt for a low-risk treatment regimen with oral and topical antibiotics in order to make an attempt at MRSA eradication and potentially prevent a chronic infection. So in regards to the oral antibiotics, I would choose approximately two to three week length of treatment and choose oral antibiotics that the patient tolerates and are sensitive on the MRSA antibiogram. So antibiotics that I usually choose are either trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, or doxycycline. And I'll use that in combination with rifampin. It's been shown that rifampin in combination with another antibiotic has eradicated MRSA in multiple previous CF studies. And we'll talk about some of these studies later. In addition to treating with oral antibiotics, in order to help with MRSA colonization at other sites of the body, I also recommend that patients use chlorhexidine body washes that they can get over the counter. And I also prescribe buprenorphine nasal cream. Cystic fibrosis patients are known to have a significantly higher rate of staph aureus anterior nasal carriage compared to non-CF controls. And then finally, I also talk to the patients about environmental decontamination, which basically is having them wipe down high-touch areas in the house with over-the-counter Clorox or Lysol wipes. The potential risks associated with the agents you've chosen. Uh, explain those to us, if you would, please. Trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, and doxycycline are very well tolerated, but can be associated with allergic reactions, gastrointestinal side effects, skin rashes, and sun sensitivity. I definitely warn the patients that if they do develop a rash, they should immediately stop the antibiotics. And in addition, even though we're in Cleveland and we only have a couple of months with sun, I tell patients to avoid extended time in the sun if you're in a different part of the United States or the world. This can definitely play a significant role as well. And I also tell patients that they should not use tanning booths while taking these antibiotics. And what about the rifampin? Rifampin is another antibiotic that has good activity against MRSA. 
And rifampin is known for causing a significant amount of heartburn. So again, I actively warn patients about this potential side effect and ask them to contact us if they notice that they're having increasing heartburn symptoms, and then we will treat it at that time. In addition, rifampin also results in reddish secretions, and so tears and urine can turn orangish-red colors, and so I make sure that the patients are aware of that as well, as that can be quite alarming if you're not expecting it. And then finally, rifampin is known to decrease the effectiveness of oral contraceptive pills. When I prescribe this to females taking oral contraceptive pills, I also recommend another form of birth control. And then finally, occasionally, patients will also be prescribed linazolid. And I've been increasingly concerned about linazolid resistance as it is becoming a bigger problem. There was a recent study from the Cleveland Cystic Fibrosis Center that reported that 15% of their patients treated with linazolid developed linazolid-resistant MRSA. The biggest risk factors for linazolid resistance were long, repeated courses of linazolid Therefore, a one-time course is not associated with linazolid resistance, but definitely becomes a concern as patients have repeated courses with linazolid. I want to note to our listeners that links to many of the studies Dr. Dazenbrook refers to in our discussion can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Now, as you said, doctor, there's no guidance regarding MRSA treatment. That's an area under current investigation, isn't it? Definitely. So I think it's pretty clear from what we've talked about so far that there's definitely clinical equipoise in this question of, do we treat a new MRSA infection or do we watch it? And so investigators at the University of North Carolina and Seattle have gotten together and designed a study, it's called the STAR-2 study, to look at this exact question. And so this is a randomized, open-label, multi-center study when in children who will be four years or older and adults. And what they're going to do is compare the use of a two-week eradication treatment protocol to an observational group who will only get antibiotics if MRSA continues to cause respiratory symptoms. Now, they plan to enroll a total of 90 patients who will have a new MRSA infection. And in this study, they're going to treat patients with oral rifampin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or minocycline if they're intolerant to the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. In addition, patients will also receive topical chlorhexidine and nasal mupirocin. The primary outcome for this study will be a negative respiratory culture for MRSA at day 28. This study is currently ongoing and look forward to these results as it will definitely help in the clinical management of our patients with a new MRSA infection. Uh, thank you, Dr. Dazenbrook. Now, move us on to another patient, if you would, please. Certainly. This patient is a 25-year-old male who presents to a routine quarterly clinic visit complaining of continued increase in his cough and sputum production. It is not responded to treatment with fluoroquinolones. His physical exam is unchanged from previous and his lungs are clear. His FEV1 is at his baseline of 75%. His previous cultures include a pan-sensitive Pseudomonas aeruginosa and he has cultured MRSA at his last two clinic visits. His respiratory medications include hypertonic saline, DNAase, albuterol, azithromycin, and every other month inhaled s The lab calls and his throat swab from clinic grows MRSA and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. This is his third MRSA culture in the last 12 months. 
One of the key differences between this CF patient and the first one you presented is that here we're seeing persistent MRSA infection. What does the evidence say about treating it? Well, there have been several epidemiologic studies that suggest that persistent MRSA is associated with worse outcomes and thus treatment may benefit these patients. The three main studies all used the United States CF patient registry. We published an analysis of the U.S. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation patient registry and found a more rapid rate of decline in lung function in patients with MRSA compared to those without MRSA, even after adjusting for severity of illness. This study suggests that if we were able to treat or eradicate the persistent MRSA, that we might be able to slow lung function decline in our patients with cystic fibrosis and persistent MRSA infections. The second study was done by D.B. Sanders and Chris Goss and colleagues at the University of Washington. And again, they used the USCF patient registry and studied over 8,500 cystic fibrosis exacerbations. And in this study, they had two interesting findings. First, even after treatment with IV antibiotics, a quarter of CF patients still did not achieve at least 90% of their pre-exacerbation lung function. Therefore, prevention of exacerbations is a key goal in maintaining the long-term respiratory health of our patients with cystic fibrosis. Next, the authors explored risk factors for failure to reach this baseline lung function. One of those risk factors turned out to be respiratory tract MRSA. And they found that CF patients with MRSA, compared to patients who never had MRSA, were at a higher risk of not responding to treatment. Therefore, again, it appears that treatment of MRSA may be associated with a decreased risk of exacerbations. Now, exacerbations and loss of lung function are very important and clinically relevant outcome measures. However, the most important outcome measure is survival. And that brings us to our third study, which we talk about in the associated newsletter. And again, we use the United States CF patient registry to look at the impact of respiratory tract MRSA infection on survival. And the study showed that patients with MRSA had worse survival compared to patients who did not culture MRSA. So in conclusion, these three studies lead us to believe that MRSA is in fact associated with worse outcomes and provides impetus to treat these patients. Now, the studies you mentioned, doctor, those were primarily epidemiologic in nature. What about studies that directly focus on treating MRSA infection in CF patients? Unfortunately, the published studies are small and have been limited by a lack of control groups, a single-center retrospective design, variable follow-up, and failure to distinguish new versus persistent MRSA infection. There was a small study by Garski and coworkers which focused on treatment of cystic fibrosis adults with persistent MRSA. Patients had an average FEV1 of 36% of predicted, and all of them had chronic pseudomonas. Five out of the seven patients, or 71%, were MRSA culture negative six months after completing a six-month treatment regimen of oral fusidic acid and rifampin. So again, we see another regimen where rifampin is added with success in eradicating MRSA. Oral fusidic acid is not available in the uh, United States. 
A second study by Doe and colleagues evaluated their experience with eradication of MRSA at the Manchester Adult CF Center in the UK. In this study, they looked at 37 patients, and their general strategy was to segregate patients that were effective and provide aggressive antibiotic treatment in order to facilitate MRSA eradication. Now, they used many different eradication regimens in order to try and eradicate MRSA, but the general theme was that they used combinations of two oral antibiotics, such as rifampin, fusidic acid, and or trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. In addition, they also utilized nebulized vancomycin for many of the study patients. They reported that eradication of MRSA was achieved in 81% of the participants at six months. Again, in this study, no distinction was made between patients with a new MRSA infection or if they had a persistent MRSA infection. However, the authors did report that approximately 38% of the patients included had multiple positive MRSA cultures, and thus we can guess that approximately that many patients may have had a persistent MRSA infection. So in conclusions, we have two studies with successful eradication measures. However, we must keep in mind the limitations stated previously. You just brought up the use of inhaled vancomycin. What are the safety issues clinicians should be aware of when using this agent? So there have been numerous reports of the clinical use of nebulized vancomycin in both CF and non-CF populations, all of which have suggested that it is well-tolerated and may be efficacious. Doses of the inhaled vancomycin have ranged from 125 milligrams to 500 milligrams and anywhere from twice a day to four times a day. In the largest study to date, 51 non-cystic fibrosis patients received 125 milligrams of nebulized vancomycin twice a day for an average of 14 days at an attempt to eradicate respiratory tract MRSA. The authors reported that there were no adverse events associated with inhaling vancomycin in these 51 participants. In addition, they also checked to see if vancomycin was detectable in the blood two hours after inhaling the vancomycin and they were unable to detect any vancomycin in the blood. In another case report, Mays and colleagues also reported their experience with a 10-year-old CF patient treated with nebulized vancomycin, 250 milligrams twice a day for 17 continuous months. The patient did not have any adverse events and did not develop any antibiotic resistance. They checked for VRE on fecal cultures and looked for the development of vancomycin intermediate staph aureus. The authors did not report any antibiotic resistance. In another study, Hayes and colleagues reported treating a post-transplant cystic fibrosis patient with refractory MRSA with inhaled vancomycin twice a day, 250 milligrams for six months. The patient had undetectable serum vancomycin levels at two hours, just like in the previous case report, and despite taking numerous other nephrotoxic medications, did not have a change in creatinine levels. In my clinical experience, especially when patients pre-treat with albuterol, inhaled vancomycin is very well tolerated. Talk to us, if you would, doctor, about the PMAP trial, PMAP, Persistent MRSA Eradication Protocol. This study is a two-center, randomized, double-blind, compared or controlled study in CF patients aged 20 to 60 years. 
The study will compare the safety of an aggressive 28-day inhaled and oral antibiotic combination protocol in 40 CF individuals with persistent MRSA infection. 20 patients will be randomly assigned to vancomycin for inhalation, 250 milligrams twice a day in 5 cc's of sterile water, and 20 patients will be randomized to taste and volume match placebo. In addition, both groups will receive oral rifampin, a second oral antibiotic, buprosin intranasal cream, chlorhexidine body washes, and instructions on how to decontaminate high-touch areas in the household. The primary outcome measure will be the percentage of patients that are MRSA-free at one month after completion of the four-week eradication protocol. This study will provide some much-needed guidance on the treatment of persistent MRSA in patients with cystic fibrosis. And we'll return with Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook from Case Western Reserve in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. .ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics and Associate Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And our topic is Emerging Pathogens in Cystic Fibrosis. We've been looking at cases that illustrate the evidence basis for treating specific respiratory pathogens in CF. So if you would, Dr. Dazenbrook, let's continue with another patient profile. The patient is a 32-year-old female with cystic fibrosis who presents for a sick visit to the CF clinic. She states that her cough has increased in frequency and that it is waking her up at night. She usually has a dry cough, but lately has been bringing up sputum. She is also concerned because she is having fevers, which is not a typical symptom for her previous CF exacerbations. She just finished a course of oral antibiotics and there was no change in her symptoms. On review of systems, she states that she has also been more tired than usual and has a decreased appetite. Physical exam is unchanged from previous and her lungs are clear. 
Spirometry revealed that her FEV1 has dropped eight percentage points below her baseline. Her culture from clinic grows methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. The patient was admitted to the hospital and started on IV antibiotics targeting MSSA. On hospital day number two, the microbiology lab called to state that 2-plus acid-fast bacilli were observed on the AFB smear. Subsequently, the mycobacterium species was identified as a rapid grower. That AFB-positive culture, how would that change your approach to treatment in this patient? Well, I find the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America joint statement about the diagnosis and treatment of non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease to be very helpful in this situation. So first, I maximally treat other non-NTM pathogens. Second, while treatment for, in our patient's case, the MSSA, is ongoing, I also obtain a CT scan of the chest and additional mycobacterial cultures. It is important to note that a single positive culture is generally not sufficient to make the diagnosis of NTM lung disease. Both of our patients' cultures were also AFB smear positive. In addition, the chest CT did have some nodular findings which could be consistent with either NTM or CF lung disease. Now, normally, NTM is a slow and progressive disease process, similar to tuberculosis. However, the one exception is mycobacterium abscessus. Abscessus can cause a rapidly progressive course. Therefore, patients whose AFB culture is initially identified as a rapid grower should be followed closely to make sure that rapid deterioration is not occurring while the workup for NTM is ongoing. In our patient's case, despite treating the methicillin-sensitive staph aureus with intravenous antibiotics, her symptoms and lung function did not return to baseline. What would your next step be? It's a very important point that the diagnosis of NTM requires both clinical and microbiologic criteria. So again, I just want to review that in our patient's particular case, she met both of these criteria. The clinical criteria, because her pulmonary symptoms did not respond to treatment of other organisms that she was culturing. She continued to have fevers, sputum production, and increased cough. And she had CT scan findings of the chest that could be consistent with NTM. In addition, she met the microbiologic criteria because she had two additional expectorated sputum samples that were AFB positive. Therefore, the next step is to consider therapy. And again, I find the guidelines to be very helpful here, as the guidelines explicitly state that the diagnosis of NTM lung disease does not automatically imply treatment. So clinicians should weigh the risks of the side effects from the treatment of NTM against the potential benefits of treatment in each individual patient. Is the prevalence of NTM increasing? Absolutely. The prevalence of NTM is increasing. In a recent prospective multi-center study in the United States of cystic fibrosis patients, the overall prevalence of NTM was 13%. The most common isolate was Mycobacterium avium complex, or MAC. It was also noted that there was a higher than expected prevalence of Mycobacterium abscessus in the CF community. Data from this study reinforces the point that treatment should not be initiated after just one positive culture. Only 20% of patients with a positive NTM culture went on to meet the ATS microbiologic criteria for disease. 
Therefore, treating after a single positive culture may expose patients who would not meet diagnostic criteria to potential morbidity from the side effects of the treatment regimen. In addition to the increasing prevalence, older CF patients are more likely to culture NTM than younger patients. I am concerned about the impact of chronic NTM infection, especially mycobacterium abscessus, on lung function. In a recent paper by Esther and colleagues, which was discussed in the newsletter, NTM was found to be associated with an increased rate of lung function decline. While the authors grouped all NTM together, the primary driver of the lung function decline was the patients who cultured mycobacterium abscesses. Therefore, I have used the results from the Esther and colleagues study when discussing treatment options with my patients. This data presents yet another argument for the potential benefits of therapy because treatment may slow the rate of lung function decline. What are the treatment options for patients with NTM? The first thing I would like to say is that strong consideration should be given to consultation with an infectious disease or pulmonary expert in the treatment of pulmonary NTM. Since our patient had mycobacterium abscessus, let me talk a little bit about the treatment of this infection. An important point to recognize is that it is very difficult to successfully eradicate mycobacterium abscesses. Since eradication may not be achieved, clinicians must turn to other measures in order to determine if the therapy is successful. Examples include improvement in the patient's symptoms, improvement in lung function, and improvement in CT scans of the chest. Therefore, I find obtaining a baseline CT scan very helpful. Now, in order to achieve eradication, symptom relief, and or improvement in the CT scan, treatment with IV, oral, and inhaled antibiotics should be considered. The first one to two months of therapy consists of treatment with multiple IV antibiotics, one of which is amikacin, followed by oral antibiotics for at least a year. My personal practice is to occasionally have patients nebulize amikacin twice a day every other month as suppressive therapy for mycobacterium abscesses. Anecdotally, I've found that it seems to control symptoms and decrease the need for toxic intravenous antibiotics. Case reports in the literature have also noted the same. Fortunately, there is a trial about to be started looking at inhaled antibiotics for the treatment of NTM lung disease, which should provide more data about the risks and benefits of inhaled therapy. Thank you for that case, doctor. Let's look at one more patient now, please. Our next case is a 55-year-old male patient with cystic fibrosis who chronically cultures Burkholderia sinocepatia and presents with a complaint of progressive dyspnea over two weeks and is currently short of breath at rest. His cough is significantly greater than baseline and his sputum is dark green and thick, which is unusual for him. He has also noted subjective fevers associated with sweating and chills. He inhales mirapenem every other month, and these symptoms started during his off month. He saw his primary care physician, who started him on afloroquinolone and high-dose corticosteroids. His physical exam was notable for the patient appearing pale, tachypnic, tachycardic, and febrile. His oxygen saturation was 82% on room air. He had diffuse bilateral rowels and had an increased work of breathing. Spirometry revealed that his FEV1 was 37% of predicted, which was significantly decreased from his baseline of the 50%. Chest X-ray revealed bilateral diffuse necrotizing pneumonias. He was started on intravenous mirapenem, intravenous tobramycin, 
and inhaled meropenem. His blood and sputum cultures revealed Burkholderia sinosepatia. The diagnosis of sepatia syndrome, what are the criteria? The presentation of sepatia syndrome is much different from a CF pulmonary exacerbation. Suspicion that the patient has sepatia syndrome should occur when patients have high fevers and have a greater degree of tachypnea and respiratory distress compared to their previous pulmonary exacerbations. In addition, the patients may appear toxic. Imaging will frequently show necrotizing pneumonias. And again, this is not commonly seen with the CF pulmonary exacerbation. Finally, blood cultures will be positive for Burkholderia sepatia complex. Now, this is a patient who, as you presented him, has chronically cultured sepatia for quite a while. What would cause him to develop sepatia syndrome now? Your thoughts on that? This is a great question. Interestingly, the patient had a history of cancer and had received multiple rounds of chemotherapy, which was associated with neutropenia, and he never had so much as an exacerbation. We still have his original infecting strain from 20 years ago, and the strain from his blood was similar. So we were able to rule out that he had acquired a new strain of sepatia. A recent paper by Zlosnik and colleagues, which is discussed in the newsletter, may shed some light on the etiology. The authors found a relationship between non-mucoid status and increased rate of lung function decline. Furthermore, ceftazidine and ciprofloxacin may induce a non-mucoid phenotype and therefore increase the virulence of the sepatia. Interestingly, miropenem was not associated with the change in the phenotype. So perhaps there was a change in our patient's mucoid status of his Burkholderia sinosepatia, and that led to the enhanced virulence. Based on the results of this paper, with all other things being equal, if I am deciding between treatment with either ceftazidine or meropenem in a patient with a history of sepatia, I would choose meropenem. Corticosteroids, do they have a place in the treatment of sepatia syndrome? This is another great question. Surviving sepatia syndrome is extremely rare. In fact, it is case reportable. Our patient actually survived his episode and has done quite well without any recurrences. There is a case report of a young girl who also survived the sepatia syndrome. Patient was deteriorating after a week of treatment with IV antibiotics, and therefore she was started on high-dose IV steroids. She improved over the next 24 hours. Then the steroids were weaned and she worsened again. The steroid dose was then increased and again, her symptoms improved immediately. Ultimately, the steroids were weaned over five weeks and the patient did quite well. In our case, the patient went to his primary care physician at the onset of his symptoms. His physician prescribed an oral antibiotic and high-dose corticosteroids. We continued them in the hospital. Given that the mortality of sepatia syndrome approaches 100% and the downsides to corticosteroids are outweighed by potential for survival, a trial of corticosteroids in patients with the sepatia syndrome is warranted, in my opinion. Antibiotics to treat sepatia syndrome. Which ones would you suggest? I would suggest the same antibiotics that are used to treat a CF pulmonary exacerbation associated with the patient's particular strain of Burkholderia sepatia complex. 
The only difference is that I am much more aggressive about adding additional antibiotics early in the course in case there is an issue with resistance to one of the antibiotics initially chosen. Since patients are septic, which is a risk factor for renal failure, I pay very close attention to the development of nephrotoxicity. The antibiotic options are based on the antibiogram and include intravenous mirapenem and other intravenous antibiotics such as trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, aztreonam, fluoroquinolones, and chloramphenicol. I will also add inhaled antibiotics in order to treat the necrotizing pneumonias that are frequently associated with sepatious syndrome. Another point to mention is that it is important to also look for any collections of infection that may not respond to IV antibiotic therapy. Sepatious syndrome is also associated with the development of mediastinitis and empyema. If you do have these in your patients, surgical consultation is warranted for immediate drainage. Thank you, Dr. Dazenbrook, for presenting those cases. What I'd like to do now is summarize the key points we talked about today. So let's begin with the evidence for potential treatment options in CF patients with both new and persistent MRSA infection. The current state of research is comprised of epidemiologic studies which suggest that these infections, new and persistent MRSA, are associated with worse outcomes. Furthermore, we have uncontrolled studies which suggest various therapeutic options that may be useful. Fortunately, right now, we have two controlled studies that are ongoing to determine the optimal treatment regimens, if any, for new and persistent MRSA infections. The evidence for potential treatment options in CF patients with mycobacterium abscessus infection. So I think that it's important to first, in regards to mycobacterium abscessus, make sure that the patient meets the ATS and IDSA criteria for the diagnosis of MABscessus lung infection. And then once they do meet that criteria, it is important to remember that just because patients meet diagnostic criteria does not automatically imply that they should undergo treatment. A conversation with the patient discussing the risks and benefits of these potential toxic therapies in their individual case is key. And finally, the evidence for potential treatment options in CF patients with Burkholderia sinosepatia complex and sepatia syndrome. In regards to Burkholderia sepatia complex and the associated sepatia syndrome, consideration should be given to high-dose corticosteroids in patients presenting with the sepatia syndrome. There are downsides to treatment with corticosteroids, but given the high mortality of the Sepatia syndrome, the potential benefits outweigh these risks. Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you, Bob. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is presented in conjunction with E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. 
The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.